Welcome to In It. This is Dave Birnbaum. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Carolina Broom. Uh, Carolina is an old colleague of mine and friend from my school days. We both studied in the same lab at McGill University. And what's interesting is part of my master's research was creating an instrument that Carolina wound up picking up after I left school. And she improved upon it so much that I'm almost embarrassed that it originated with me because her version is much more technically complex and innovative than anything I had created. We do talk about that a bit. And then we also talk about Carolina's more recent work. She's focused on capturing human motion with sensors and filtering out noise to get to the gesture and the human intent. She's done this for dance, baseball, and also worked with Google on Project Soli. When this episode was recorded, the Pixel 4 hadn't been released yet. So we talk about it as if it takes place in the future, but the Pixel 4 is out and I've gotten to use one. And the feature that Carolina worked on where you can wave at the phone to get the phone to do things, in other words, perform hand gestures in front of the phone rather than touch the touch screen. You know, it sounds like it might have a limited application, but I already used it for its intended purpose. I thought it was an amazing experience. I was cooking something and I had dirty hands and I wanted to just skip a song in Spotify and I waved my hand kind of near my phone and lo and behold, the track just skipped. No drama, no problems with recognizing what I was trying to do. It just worked. And I was like, wow, thank you, Carolina. So she gets into kind of her experience building that. And we talk about the future of gesture interaction and how body language and haptic communication varies according to cultural norms. Very interesting conversation. And I'll get out of the way and get started. So Ladies and gentlemen, Carolina Broom. Uh, let me see. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Perfect. Yeah. So you're back. I'm back. It's crazy. <laughs> End of summer. Yeah. I, I'm biking as much as I can. Nice. <laughs> Virtually. You're, you just got back from Brazil, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was winter there, so it was pretty cold there. I realized I knew you before you added this name, and I don't exactly know how to say it. So can you say your full name with the accent so that when I do the intro, it actually sounds like what you yeah. would want? Okay, so I don't use my last name much. So I use more Carolina Brum. Oh, okay. I thought you were like just Carolina. I was like, you know, it's like Madonna. It's like you're the... You have just a first ah. name. Okay, Carolina Brum. Okay. Cool. Okay, you say this to all the people there in interview. So, <laughs> so, um, so we had a really interesting conversation offline about gesture and the future of human computer interaction. But I wanted to first just kind of set the stage and tell our audience about how we know each other. Maybe you could talk about Idmill a little bit and and what goes on over there and how music interaction kind of plays into what you do. Okay, so um, so my background, just like to start, is in engineering. Since early days, I started working with sensing and measuring things, but first in a really like classical engineering perspective, so like for machines and stuff. And then I said like, oh, that's too boring. I want to take the best machine ever built, and that's uh, the human body. So I started to study how we move and how we interact with each other, with objects, right now with robots. And I said, like, oh, that's that's kind of cool. And people, they are really specialized in motion, like uh, the so-called skilled motor performers are really more, even more interesting because they build these really special ways to move and like to trigger mental models in their like bodies and brains to generate a really specialized motion. And these people are dancers, musicians, and athletes. Mm -hmm. So I came for Idmail, that is uh, input devices 
I forgot the name of our lab. <laughs> input de- I think it's Input Devices and Music Interaction Lab. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah probably. It's, this. <laughs> it's really hard to remember. Yeah, so um, I came to the mill, and it's a lab where you and uh, other people have designed digital musical instruments and new ways for expressing music and producing music. Um, it's a really cool lab doing a lot of stuff with music and dance and uh, installations and interaction. So the work I've done is more towards taking, so like I still work with sensing and uh, inherent part of sensing is noise. So what I do is uh, try to get rid of this noise. Mm. A classical way to do it is to know, to use the knowledge on the dynamic models of systems, for example, the dynamic model of an airplane. And by knowing this dynamic model, can filter the noise out of the data. But in humans, the motion and what they are going to do with the dynamics are completely unpredictable. So how we use the same techniques, the same filtering techniques, if you don't know, then you don't have the knowledge of these dynamic models. So that's, that's what I do is like try to use these filters and run prediction algorithms when the dynamic model is not well described because it's driven by human motion. Um, I see. It's interesting too, because you've done work in, when you said athletics, you did a project about baseball and then you've yeah. also done a bunch of stuff on music and what's interesting about the the difference between them i would think you can tell me if i'm wrong is that in baseball it's kind of goal directed right you have the goal of you know accomplishing some physical task like hitting a baseball mm-hmm. and whereas in music it's like expression expressing mm-hmm. yourself through motion through body movement to play an instrument or to dance and so it seems like they're very different problems to solve with regards to what is noise versus what is meaningful signal Yes, exactly. Yeah, in um, for example, in sports, um, as you said, like I work with the Red Sox team in uh, in oh, wow. Boston. That's cool. You uh, work directly with them. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was a project with the Harvard Medical School, the MIT Media Lab. That I was there for part of my PhD, and uh, and this company called like Simotion that works with biomechanics hmm. and the Red Sox. So one example I can give in sports that's really relevant is that when an athlete has an injury and gets a treatment, we have ways to measure the motion to see. By measuring the motion, we can tell if that athlete is ready to come back to sport or not. And the way we do this is by analyzing the motion and see how consistent it can be in kinetics and kinematics. So like how uh, if they can do like similar motion in position and force. And like this is really hard to find when you have expression involved because uh, academically in music, for example, uh, Marcelo Wanderley, our former advisor, he characterizes like three types of like motion in music, the essential motion, that's the motion that I like need uh, to produce sound, like pressing a key from uh, auxiliary motion or auxiliary gestures Mm. is the gestures like the motion, for example, the motion of my torso that helps me to blow stronger in a wind instrument and expressive gestures that can be anything. So this last part we don't have in sports. We have this in dance and music. And this varies a lot, uh, is really rich and changes a lot across uh, performers. So it's really hard, for example, to do comparisons with 10 dancers, for example, because all of them, they put their own signature on that. And each time they repeat the motion, they have a different like expressive content to the repetition so they have several things in common but like a lot of differences when it comes to expression so so those utilitarian gestures of playing an instrument are more like the baseball player exactly so you can use some of the same signal processing techniques for both of those but then you need like another layer on top of that for the musicians wow yeah exactly and like the 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 funny part there when it comes like to doing experiments with this kind of people uh, is that they have like this really clear mental models what should be emotion. 
And it's proven already by like some neurological tests that they trigger this mental model and they know in advance if the motion's gonna work or not. So several times you are testing them and even before doing the motion, they know if it's gonna be accurate or not and they ask to stop and do it again. Mm. And other like curiosities are kind of the way you have to run the experiment that they don't think they're being evaluated or that it's a competition or anything that they can really like do in the most natural way. And there is nothing, there is no evaluation in the end. So that's, that's really complicated. And that's something that has to be done with the professors or the trainers and all this stuff. Oh, I see. Uh, so you're the saying, numbers show yeah. a lot. So you're saying like right? when they know, when they know they're being tested, it, it affects the way that they perform the way they move, which is, we all can relate to that, right? As soon as somebody's watching yeah. you, you can't do it anymore, right? Yeah, exactly. So in, in athletes, this is more uh, tricky because like, for example, some of them, they fake that they, they're not feeling pain because they want to come back to play. They want to come back to sport. Oh, so they right. fake, they say like, oh, I'm really good. I'm doing well. And then you see by the day that they are not, right? Mm-hmm. And... And in the musicians, there is all like this thing that like, I want to do that. I want to show that. And it's all about building your personal signature. And you know that the data is going to reveal some stuff. So some people, for example, sometimes they are afraid of exposing their technique while playing. Mm. Or some of them are afraid that some weakness on the motion is going to show up in the data. So like all these things you have to make really clear and be ethical about it that you won't pass it forward or you won't make the data public and all this kind of things. So wow. it's, it's a little bit of an art form. The way you're going to ask them, it's like, can you do that? If you say like, can you do that? They want to show that they can do that. So like, uh, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, if I ask a dancer to do a developé, and uh, I do the developing myself and I do in a crooked way, they do in a crooked way. So sometimes you have to use a model or like a drawing or like just a name because they're really good to reproduce emotion. Mm-hmm. And musicians are more attached to the way the sound is going to be. So like for each of them, they have these particularities, each of these three groups. Interesting. So wait, so I, I understand the, the, I guess the, business value or the ROI on, on, um, on the baseball players, because you're, you're trying to evaluate people's mm-hmm. ability to get back into the sport without injuring themselves and things like that. What, what was the goal of the, the musician and dancer analysis? Like, what were you doing with that data? Was it to help people perform better or was it to create synthesizers or, or what was going on there? Yeah. So for, for music, I did several things from defining beat deafness collaborating with another researcher to finding synchrony between motion and sound. But like what I did the most was to take your instrument. <laughs> and oh, the rulers. The, the rulers. rulers. Okay, wait. So you have to explain what that is. It- yeah. yeah. So maybe like you can explain that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I built this thing that I always explain it as, um, you know, when you're a kid and you take a ruler and you hold it against the edge of a desk and you thwack the other side and it makes a really funny sound. So I made this instrument that was just made out of those, all different lengths, but I, I took pains to make them silent so that they would make no actual acoustic sound, but then there were sensors under each one. So the vibration of the rulers would be translated to data that you could use to create a synthesizer. And um, it was interesting because it kind of provided you this force feedback that was inherent to the material. So we used, I think we started with wood um, and those felt really good, but they kept breaking. So we changed to aluminum and those didn't feel as good, but they were more robust. I think by the time you got there, they were aluminum. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So it was, it was this instrument I made um, and you got in touch with me years after I had kind of forgotten <laughs> about all that and started asking me questions about how it worked. Um, yeah. Cause you were, you were using it to, to, you were upgrading it, right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the anecdote was that my first time in Canada, my first time at McGill, like I arrived in Canada, I came directly to McGill 
And then I I got a tour for the lab, and then someone showed me your instrument, and I said like, oh, uh, do they have string gauges here? And they're like, no, do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first day. Um, yeah, because it was it was optical. Or, yes, which yeah, because is, you had the magnetic measurements and optical, oh, yeah. and uh, I remember like another story is that. You had to put a cloth because the sensor would uh, see the light, the stage lighting would yeah. interfere in the in the measuring. Yeah. So basically, yeah. if anyone's listening who wants to build any kind of interface, don't use IR optical sensing things like that because they're extremely uh, sensitive to ambient yeah. light. And yeah. you know, you calibrate it before you go on stage, and then the stage lighting is different, and you it, yes. it just completely. Yeah. So you, you, you made it strain gauge based, which is the right way to go because you're, it's like a force based input yeah. device. So you yeah. should be measuring force. Yeah. So the work I did, uh, with this and analyzing the motion and like bringing people like, uh, to a motion capture lab was that I, I took the two, uh, sensing technologies you used. I added strain gauges and I brought to the motion capture lab and I used the motion capture data as ground truth for analyzing the tree sensing types. And then it turns out that for the two gestures that you could use to play the instrument, each gesture had like the best sensing type. So hmm. it was best to measure uh, bending when you were like holding the beams and uh, moving mm. with, uh, I don't remember now, I think it's a magnetic one <laughs> and it was best to do that. It was best to like to, to have the plucking with the string gauges. So the conclusion is that by fusing data from several sensors that have limitations in different configurations, you can have a better result. So for this, I, I use a lot of common filters and to fuse data from several sensors and analyze who is the best the best guy for each scenario and then like put all this together to have more accuracy in the end. So that's more what I did for music. Oh, wow. No, I'm just I didn't know you did all that. I didn't know that you were using sensor fusion techniques. That's really yeah. cool. That is interesting. Yeah, so there is a this is a uh, IEEE sensors paper oh, on the wow. rulers. Oh wow. Yeah. So I will check that out. It's it's exactly that. How can you use these filters that highly rely on a dynamic model when you don't have the dynamic model? Yeah. So that's what I've done ever since. Like even if we can't define the dynamic model completely, we can define some parts of the dynamic model because we have constraints in the body, we have constraints in the joints. So part of the story we can tell. And we can use that to filter the noise and data. So, and then, and then you use this experience in sensor fusion and noise removal, and you you worked on a gesture project with Google for a long time, right? Yes. So, I don't know how much you're allowed to talk about that. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> so, about it. Um, so I worked for a Project Soli at Google for three years. And people can find more like information online. We have demos and all these things. And I was doing something really similar to what I was doing for the rulers. I was trying to model gestures in order to recognize them, to be able to tell which gesture was being executed and when. Mm. And for this, I was using similar techniques. Uh, so the, the main goal is that is now released, so I, I can talk about it. It's going to be in the Pixel 4 phone. And the idea is that before you had touch to control your phone and you had voice. And now you can do gestures in air and you can control, you can change your music, for example. You can do a gesture and change the next track. So there is a lot of gesture recognition. I was in the team that was called signal processing and gesture recognition team. Yeah. And we are doing a lot of signal processing and ML. And in the end, uh, some of um, my colleagues were doing neural nets to identify these gestures. So, but, wait, so help me understand. So you're, doesn't the phone have to be pointed towards you 
to be able for it to see a gesture like a wave to fast forward or rewind or how does um, it not, not exactly not okay. not not really like it works if any position so um but it's the camera the camera's looking at the room yeah but that's the thing so it's not a camera it's based oh. on radar it's a radar based oh, okay. sensor interesting yeah so there is um seagraph paper 2015 before uh i joined the project and it explains that so like tiny radar that goes into the phone and it sends like radio waves to the space mm. it bounces like on everything on like static objects such as walls and everything and like moving parts such as your body your hands and first thing is that we ignore stationary content and then we check, we know the radio, the radio distance and the radio velocity of several targets on the air. And with this, we try to recognize if a gesture is happening or not. Wait, so, okay. So what is the range then? So let's say the phone is out on your desk. How far away and how off axis can you be for it to work? Okay, so this, I, I'm not sure what's the final configuration. Yeah. <laughs> all these things are really variable. You can have all sorts of distances and uh, angles and depending on like how much processing you have, how much power you have and all these things. So the sensor is something, the application of the sensor into the phone is something else. So I, I'm, hmm. I, I'm not sure I can say what is the, the the operating range? But not precisely. For the phone. But not precisely. But I mean, if the phone, let's say, I'm talking to you right now. My phone is over here. I don't know if you can see it on the desk. You, you can. Yeah, you can definitely. Yeah, I could just like wave that. my hand anywhere in yes. the vicinity of the phone. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. And so, <laughs> what's interesting too about it is that it's radar, and that's a new sensor that's being integrated yes. into the phone. Yes. And there aren't that many new sensors anymore. I remember there was this um, this period where there were new sensors in every model of phone. And yes. that's what flagships were doing, you know, maybe five years ago. And everything kind of stabilized. But, you know, putting radar in the phone, there's more mm -hmm. use cases than just gesture control it could be used for eventually. And, you know, um, yeah. that's an interesting yeah. development. I also remember that back then there were some uh, OEMs who were trying to do this. And they were using the camera. That's why I assumed it was mm -hmm. the camera because we were actually helping them figure out what the haptic feedback should be for a gesture input over the camera. And actually, I believe it was fast forward and rewind um, mm -hmm. of a track. Like that's exactly the use case. And it never came to market, I don't think. Um, or at least it, it never worked well enough that it became a standard feature. So do you, yeah. have you, has your group thought at, at all about like the future of radar in phones? And did you think about any other sensors yeah, sure. So I think that what what is really nice about radar, especially now that uh, we are discussing a lot of about privacy and all these things, right? Uh, it's so annoying that you have face recognition and you can unlock your phone and someone's unlocking your phone, but like you are in the background, so you wonder like what's going on with like my image here, what's uh, what's happening, and for the radar, we can't say if a moving object is a hand or a curtain. You can't tell much, right? So right. like for the radar, it's the same thing. You see something, some energy moving, and then like, of course, you have like dynamic models, the ways we move that other objects don't move, but there is lots of overlapping. So at the same time, that's a challenge to define if someone's doing a gesture, it's really private. You can't tell if it's a human and who the human is. So this is pretty neat. Um, huh. yeah, I see a lot of, uh, possibilities for actually this project had a really cool narrative, uh, at the beginning and the use of this same radar would be like to smartwatches. And this is, uh, mm. I can tell you can see online. It's all online. So um, it's a uh, Google IO 2016. There is a demo of project solely on a, a smartwatch. And the narrative is pretty interesting because when you use a smartwatch and you want to control it, you cover the information with your finger. While if you can control with in-air gestures, you don't cover the information. So the narrative is pretty cool. So I, I, I think 
use of radar for gesture controllers and for uh, new devices is really cool, but I really think there are so many other possibilities other than the phone, which the narrative is much more compelling. The privacy thing is really interesting, but I have to think that that's a temporary state of affairs. It seems to me that there's got to be groups trying to figure out how to identify individuals from radar signatures. Like as soon, you know, as soon as that's just the way things are done, there's going to be so much commercial pressure to know who's yeah. using the phone in order to like serve ads to them that that's got to just be like a gap right now, but that privacy value will go away. I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but it just is my yeah. guess. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's possible if you have enough capture rate and enough resolution, you can, for example, compare gate signatures from people. So, which is really hard, but if you have that, if you have enough capture rate and resolution, I can tell this is a person that walks this way and it is a person that walks this other way. Right. So I, I can say that we are different people, but for having it embedded on like, for example, a phone or something that relies on batteries, we're not there right now right. yet. Right. And there's no it's database of everybody's different radar signature gate yet. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But, there, but there would be one day and then you could probably find them, you know? Yeah. And if only when they are walking. Right? right. So like this is like a signature from like the walking motion. So if the person's not walking, you can't define that. So I think sure. in the future, I see that there will be equivalent of a sensor fusion uh, happening where you have the camera. What's the problem? The camera it consumes a lot of power. So instead of having your camera on all the time just to recognize you, you can have a mix of all these technologies where you have the camera recognize you once and after all other sensors thinking over and finding where you are and like understanding if you are there or not. Hmm. So I, I believe that that's the, the, the future and like there are some people trying to work with radar for gesture recognition, but it's pretty it's pretty new it sounds like it sounds like there's an ai angle here i mean i think about the way that we integrate our sensory inputs into a perception of objects in the world around us and that takes place in the brain upstream and i'm wondering i actually don't know this is there already kind of these ai systems in phones that are taking multiple different sensor inputs and creating a picture of something or are all the recognition features of a phone really confined to one sensory input? Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not a specialist on that, but I know that the activity detection phones, for example, defining if you're like sleeping, walking, running, biking, it uses multiple sensing. For example, it can tell by the light, uh, maybe it's in your pocket, so you won't measure you walking as you running because it's moving more in your pocket than you would be in your hand. Mm -hmm. Anyways, it's using more than one uh, sensing part. But right now, the little I know, the best sensing things on phones are really the simple and powerful solutions. The more (laughs) architectured ones, Uh they don't work really well. It's the kind of feature that you end up being annoyed by and then you just turn off and just say like, I don't want that anymore. Like this thing is like switch on all the time. Right. Which I would think would be an issue with this gesture recognition through radar, but it sounds like you've solved a lot of those problems. Yeah. So how do you know? Okay. So obviously I'm a haptics guy, so my mind goes there, but there's probably other ways you could give feedback, but how do you give feedback to the user that they've accomplished a gesture? Let's say you're skipping a track in Spotify. Mm -hmm. You obviously would know if the track skipped, but if there's other, if there's other things you're trying to do that don't have such an obvious feedback mechanism, like how are you giving the user feedback about what they're doing? Is it audio or something else? Yeah, so it's a lot of on the UI. Uh, at Google, you're working like really close to the design team mm. to see like in one side what's possible to do in the technical perspective and in the other side what they want as magic and interaction and all this. Yeah. And it would be a constant back and forth what we can do and what we want. And when you get to a solution that's for sure like limited, all the solutions have limitations, then it goes back 
to designers to say, okay, how two things, how we're going to communicate the user, how to use it and how to adjust the motion so it works for them. And, and one more thing that I haven't added before is that how do I create a user interface that compensates for the limitation and technology? For example, if um, you were too far away and I can't see you, I put like small fading light just appearing on the screen. And then you understand that you're too far and then you have mm-hmm. to come closer. So this kind of uh, sometimes is a highlighting of a light in your UI that teaches you how to use the gesture. And like this happens even with touch, if I'm like swiping and changing photos, you can tell if it goes halfway or not. And the UI tells you you have to swipe more. You have to have more range of motion, the swipe for it to work. So it's lots of back and forth between like the design team and the engineering team to adjust that balance between what's possible and like what makes sense for the user perspective. Yeah. So it's mostly visual right now. Yes, mostly visual. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so I have to ask. So we had this conversation and then you sent me a bunch of links about social robots, the future of interaction with intelligent machines. How does all this research play into what you expect? Going back to what we were talking about where we have all these sensor inputs coming into an AI system mm-hmm. um, that's creating a picture of the world. You know, something that concerns me is when you have a machine that has sensor inputs that are unlike human inputs, like let's say radar, right? We don't have a sense of radar. Mm -hmm. And so it gives them kind of a different type of intelligence, which causes maybe there to be a gap in the way that we can understand each other, socialize. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the same time, well, we're not going to just build robots that have only human senses. So that's certainly, Mm -hmm. you know, they're certainly going to be more powerful than us in terms of sensing some ranges of of energy. Right. Mm -hmm. So so how does um, how do we build safe? social robots that understand us and, and who we can understand? Oof, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that the, the concept of uh, robots being safe has changed mm. so much. Um, before, being safe was more like, how do I make a robot not kill me or like just fall over me with I don't know how many pounds and like break my arm or something. Mm-hmm. And today is more about how it's safe that it's not mentally disturbing or like emotionally disturbing for me. So I think we are more at this stage right now where robots can pretend empathy and other feelings that they actually can't feel. So the danger there is that we take the responsibility of a human being, for example, they are building social sociable robots to be companions for elderly people, right? And we are trying to take the responsibility from us humans and give to a robot, give to an entity that doesn't have responsibility, doesn't understand moral ethics or anything. And we are handling the responsibility to this um, to this agent. And I, I think we don't know yet. We know some uh, um, some things that can happen when you do that, but we don't know much what can happen in the human uh, psyche because of this. So you know already that for kids, if they play with the social robots that pretend empathy, that these kids are less aware of danger outside in the world. So they are less aware if someone like tries to be mean to them, they they don't recognize that. They are less uh, capable of recognizing bad behavior. So that's dangerous. I was listening to um, another podcast and I can't remember who said this. I'll, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But somebody, um, you know, kind of a leading light in AI was of the opinion that if you can fake it, you have it that there's this false Mm -hmm. dichotomy between faking something with HCI and actually just having it. I mean, I guess it goes back 
to the Turing test, right? If you can convince people mm-hmm. that this robot is empathetic, then you've created an empathetic robot. But it sounds like mm-hmm. you don't agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Because uh, for sure, like, it works. So if I'm faking empathy to a child, like a child comes to me and say, like, oh, you know, tells a robot, I'm so sad, my sister... Mm-hmm. Uh, said something mean to me and then the robot goes and say like oh I'm really sorry I get it I understand you I'm really sorry the kid probably I'm not a psychologist or anything but I think that there is a process that is a normal process of us as human beings of elaborating on our feelings and what happens towards life and if I have this agent that is always let's say pleasing me we will be able to be frustrated in life. Yeah, but you're talking about kids, right? It's easy to yeah. it's easy to uh, to lie to children. Yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> no, I'm not but speaking I, from personal but, experience. But, but I think for us too, uh, take Facebook for example, right. right? Facebook is always feeding me with content that I agree with. It's always pleasing me. It's sending me political posts or content that I agree with that I like. And do I get less, more frustrated now when like something doesn't come as I like? Uh, Maybe yes, you know, I I think so. I think life is full of frustration. I think uh, especially grad school, it's full of frustration. And then like you get used to it and like you develop a thick skin and that's part of it. But then if I'm always pleased by an agent, that knows how to make me happy because like an agent doesn't want to make you sad. Otherwise you won't buy it. You won't buy the new version. You won't keep it. You turn it off, you know? So they have to please you as a product. And um, we all work on new products to please people. But uh, when it started like playing with emotions, I think that gets a little, a little tricky. And I think the, on AGI, to finish your question about like what this researcher said, mm-hmm. on AGI, I think that we can think about AGI when these machines, when these agents start to fear death. So until then, they won't be able to feel how we feel because as someone that like researches motion, I can tell that the fastest and the most efficient motions we do is for survival, is reflection. It's when like we are trying like to save a child from falling or we try to save ourselves from falling or from like getting hurt. So the most clever motions we have for survival. So if these machines can't have that, how can they develop that? I'm not sure. So I think I think it won't take uh, as little time as people are expecting. That's interesting because there's a lot of talk about how you might load human values into a machine to make sure that they share the same values as us. And you can go down a rabbit hole talking about what human values are and mm-hmm. like how we develop them and whether they're valid or whether they're just social constructs. But you bring up a really interesting point, which is really the common denominator that we all have is that we're alive. We don't really know why and what the meaning is. And then we die. And mm-hmm. everything, everything we think and develop culturally mm-hmm. comes from that first principle. And so it might be a simpler problem than some are letting on. You may not need to define human value in order to load it onto machines. You may just need to be able to architect the system with the same or not the same limitations, but somehow analogous limitations so that mm-hmm. it builds its own ethical system. And maybe that ethical system would be a reflection of ours just because it's based on the same set of limitations. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and if we teach values to machines, it's pretty hard because if you use the statistics right now, we'll probably won't build a really good machine because if we type at Google, why do... Uh, X nationality are, you see all sorts of weird things that are produced by statistics, by what people type. So in AI, how much we act on the statistics. So meaning that if I put something racist about someone that comes from here or there, or about women or you name it, 
do I have as scientists the responsibility to go there and like change this algorithm so it doesn't reproduce this racism? So how can we define this moral? Because my ideas would be different than yours. And if you use the statistics, maybe you are not a well served as well. So I think it's pretty complicated to try to teach these machines. I think we have so many things that robots can do today to make life easier for a bunch of people. I think that we have better narratives to use those robots for daily life that don't need any emotional dependency or involvement. Yeah, and you talked earlier about how technology makes life easy for people and that that may be detrimental to our emotional development. And we're living in that era right now. We're living in an era where Mm -hmm. we're used to a state of affairs where we come from a life that doesn't have technology. Life is hard. There are so many limitations to our cognitive power, to our physical Mm -hmm. capabilities. And then technology comes along and is able to solve a lot of those problems for us. And so our first instinct is to make everything as easy as possible, just turn up the easy knob as high Mm -hmm. as possible. And that's causing us problems. Maybe there's something to be said for like tuning interactive systems to induce flow states, right? So your uh, example from getting your PhD, like I'm sure Mm -hmm. that it was extremely challenging, but that on your best days, you were in flow Mm -hmm. state, you were learning, you were challenged just enough to mm-hmm. not want to quit, not feel like it's totally uh, totally useless to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. And then that's how you were able to achieve something in that context. So and, and commercial pressures aside, let's say there was no mm-hmm. incentive to make money here. Is the goal of, of an interactive system that will benefit people to induce a flow state in them as opposed to making things too easy or too hard? You know, uh, so can, can you repeat that again? Sure. Sorry. No, no, no problem. No, the, the, only the question, only the question. Are you familiar with this book, Flow, by um, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi? Maybe I'm speaking no, uh, no. ahead of myself here. So, so there's, this book oh, about, okay. there's this book about how people are happiest when they have achieved this state of flow where there's an optimal yeah. amount of challenge that they're encountering mm-hmm. so that their task isn't too easy or too hard. And mm-hmm. um, there's all these psychological markers that are associated with that, like... Mm-hmm time begins to pass very, very quickly. Um, you get totally absorbed in the task and it's harder to be distracted. Um, mm-hmm. Anxiety levels go down. Uh, pleasure is increased. And so um, I'm sure you you can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Like most people mm-hmm. have some, mm-hmm. some memory of these situations they get themselves into where they just get into a flow state and they look up at the clock and they realized you know, that three hours have passed and they've just achieved so much. They've made this awesome piece of art or they've written a chapter of their book. And so maybe we can use, we can tune Mm -hmm. human computer interaction to Mm -hmm. kind of enable that. And -hmm. maybe these new sensors like radar, looking at your gestures, Mm -hmm. looking at everything from your biometrics, biomechanics, trying to figure out like what's Mm -hmm. your psychological state based on biomarkers. And then how do we Mm -hmm. tune the interaction to like optimize that so that it's not too easy for you, but you're challenged and and you want to continue interacting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So Currently, I'm working with some assistive technologies for like neurodiverse people. And it's pretty interesting because some people are trying to do this. Most of the projects I've seen in academia coming out from academia for like helping people, for example, with attention levels and with stress, most of those things, they are quite okay on like measuring the state, using sensing, multiple sensing to measure the state, but they fail on like giving feedback to the user and getting the user to go to that productive level that they want because like just the, the, the feedback or the way of interacting with the user is annoying for the user. Mm-hmm. So there's a project at the MIT Media Lab it's a glass that you you wear and like it measures your level of attention and it let's say like it buzzes you when you were getting like uh, distracted and I went to several forums for ADHD people and they are like oh my god this is horrible they compare like they compare this to like the image there were several people posting actually the image of, uh, I forgot the name of the, the character, 
that guy in like Clock Orange. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. With the yeah. he had these sticks that were holding his eyes open, so he was he forced to watch a movie without. Blinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like this way. How you're gonna lead the user to a flow, to a level of attention, to a level of stress that they want, but like there are ways and ways to lead them there. And that, I think, is the tricky part to solve right now. And all the devices I see coming from the Kai conference and the journals about that. So how we can measure this, we can like get all these clues from like the body, from measures of temperature on the skin and many things we can measure. But like, how can we act on in a way that the user will not ignore and you allow us and want to be disturbing. Right. Because if you imagine people are like rats, if you have two buttons, one of them, they can push it and get something easy. And the other one, they can push it and be challenged mm-hmm. and be induced into a flow state. I mean, the rats are going to push the easy button and people are like that. Right. I mean, maybe it's actually just kind of a, like a cultural educational thing where people just need to know this is an unhealthy feeling when things are too easy exactly. and seeing like yeah. continuous items in my feed that are just validating my opinions i'm noticing that and i'm noticing that life is too easy right now i'm going to choose this other thing that's going to challenge me and maybe that's just i mean that's that's a tough change we have been extremely conditioned to go after easy things i mean think about like i mean everything from sugar sugary foods and everything else so uh yeah, yeah but i mean i guess it's possible um, I hope it's possible. So do you, I'm sorry, do you think it's possible? <laughs> uh, to be able like to press the easier buttons? No, I'm like do sure. you think it's possible to make a, a flow-inducing interface and then do you think it's possible to convince people to use it or is it just kind of a hopeless endeavor? Yeah, I, I think there will be people, for sure, as you said, like they will go the sugar way, like they just choose that, right? For example... There is a great documentary they called uh, Have You Take Your Pills or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Where college kids are just addicted to ADHD drugs, right? So you take this booster and then like you're super powerful. You can study for like longer hours. You're super efficient. Your brain is frying. Yeah. And like several people are choosing this path. Several people prefer like to drink soy and Instead yeah. of losing time and like going to the restaurant, I <laughs> yeah. I am a, I was I was a Soylent user. I do not eat it anymore, but I I did for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, you know, like three years in Silicon Valley, you see like lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> you see uh, lots of things like this. Cool. <laughs> so ten to fifteen years out, we're looking back. We're re- listening to this recording. What has happened since then? Ooh. I think our phones that are now super personal, it won't be like as personal anymore. Like we'll have more people uh, interacting with our phones. It's going to be, I I expect that. I expect that the the social interaction takes over the devices and not the opposite. I I, I do think that that's going to happen. We'll have phones that respond to the presence of more than one person he still interacts with you as if you're your, it was yours, but other people use it. I think that we will have a lot to learn with interacting with robots. I think it, there is no way back on that. We have to learn gestures and like means like to interact with them in ways that they understand what we want. Mm. So I think we're gonna learn these new gestures, learn these new forms of interaction with robots and our cities will have all these interactive panels and all these things that like uh, not only one person's gonna use, but multiple people are gonna use. It sounds so, like a kind of an optimistic, it could, yeah, it could turn it out is. well, right? It could turn out well, may not, I don't know. So. Yeah, I think- yeah. Most of them, like most of the things I said is this is stuff that I would like to work on. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that the work you and other folks are doing is pretty great on like how do we get like interaction among people 
remotely even. Mm-hmm. How do you approach people using technology? But it's not that a 2D technology is not something so flat and so limited. You have more than audio and video 2D. You have more, more ways of interacting. I see many things coming out of this in like a near future. And I think that that will make flow flow. <laughs> nice. Can I tell you a secret? You're, yeah. You're my first interviewee. Shay, you lied to me. Did I? No, I didn't. I was going to have another one, but oh, it, okay. it got postponed. So you're actually first. So we'll you're see. You're pretty good as a host. No, really? You are because like I've, I've, um, I've worked on radio before. Really? I did. I did. And then because I'm a, I'm a frustrated journalist, actually. So. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. What, what do you what do you mean? Because like I almost dropped electrical engineering to go for like journalism to study journalism. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I realized that like, oh, I do like engineering. It's just that like I hate the environment because it was a really macho environment, full of men, disgusting men. <laughs> so it was a therapy for people that were not sure if they are in the wrong, uh, right path. Yeah. And I did that, and the conclusion was exactly the same I had. Like, no, you you, you like what you do. It's just the, the environment is not good. But I like journalism as well. And I worked on um, free radio, kind of like community radio in mm-hmm. Brazil for years. That's cool. And I would chase really important people. I even interviewed uh, Chavez. You know Chavez? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hugo Chavez. You Hugo Chavez, interviewed yeah. Hugo Chavez? Yeah. Oh my God. How did you, how did you do that? I got a chance to be invited to an event that he would be. And then like a professor just took my hand and said, because I was a community radio and the community radio was really political. And then they liked us. So they just grabbed my, the arm and like, you should come here. Do you have your shit with you? Like your recorder? And I'm like, yeah. And then I go there and like, I, oh my God, I was not prepared. Like I, I was not prepared, you know. Yeah. What, so, what, what year was this? This was, oh my God. I don't remember. I mean, I'm just wondering if it was like during his rise to power or after everything already went down, you know? No, no, it was before. It oh, was wow. one like, it was really, I, I think. Uh, what did you, what did you ask him? Yeah, so I asked about the I ask about the event. I asked why the event was important and why he was there and like stuff like that. That guy, you don't need to ask him anything. He just gives it out, you know. He takes over. Yeah. So I had the the chance like to I asked two things for him, and then we laughed and there was an army of journalists outside, mm. and then like they all like Chavez, blah 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 blah, <laughs> and then and then he's like. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? You know, and then he does that and everybody already, you know, he changed. He yeah. had like this, I don't know, he was so uh, charismatic. He would just change the entire thing. People would change their ways and they, he would start already talking without no question, like just like shooting out things. Like, yeah, crazy. Yeah, I, I really like journalism. I like I like to present things. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. But like, I'm, I'm not good at it. Uh, well, because I, I, first thing, like, I'm not good at language. So that's my first barrier right there. Really? You mean like writing? You don't, you don't like to write a lot? Is that it? You yeah, because fine I, to me. I, I was born, <laughs> I was born in a region that like we speak Portuñol. Oh, what, what is that? So it's Portuguese with Spanish. Really? What's it, what's it called? Portuñol. It's a part of Brazil. It's the northern part or the southern? Part? Uh, it's the south. Wow. It's like one hour from the border. So like I don't speak Portuguese well. I don't speak Spanish well. You know, I have been always a failure on like writing. And um, when I was 14, I, I, I went to technical high school. It was a bigger school far away from home. Right. And then I had to travel like one hour to get to the school. And then I go there and then I had really good marks as a kid, but then I started to go there and get really bad marks in Portuguese. And then I go to the teacher, like I was a really angry teenager. I go to the teacher and say like, 
what the fuck, you know, like, my father is going to kill me. You can't do that. You know, I can't take bad marks. And she's like, you can't use new language. You can't use Spanish. And I'm like, that's not Spanish. I spoke like that. I, I wrote like that my entire life. That's not Spanish. She's like, it is. And I'm like, it's not. She's like, go, go to the library and like bring, bring the two dictionaries here. So I went like stepping, like going like this. I got there. I opened the two dictionaries and she was right. So I came back like facing down, like really quiet. And she's like, where are the dictionaries? And I'm saying like, you know, you're right. I'm like, what didn't you bring? And I'm like, was not an, it was not needed. You were right, you know, but it was, uh, I was 14 and uh, soon I discovered that half of what I would say was not Portuguese. My mom doesn't know she, she speaks Portuguese. She's, she thinks she, what she says is Portuguese and she doesn't know anything uh, in Spanish. That That's her view on herself. But what about like TV, uh, all these soap operas and stuff? She doesn't, when she watches that, she doesn't perceive that as a different dialect yeah they 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 think it's just the accent huh. but like they say like oh yeah it's just the accent because this is from rio sao paulo you know the soap operas and all this stuff is like from rio sao paulo and here we speak in a different way yeah. but it's not only speaking a different way it's really different wow but she she has never she 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 never went to school so she doesn't know like the formalities mm-hmm. It's, this is really common. This is really common. I mean, I guess I'm thinking about like, like Scottish. If we're watching a, a TV show that's people who are speaking Scottish, it's yeah. Scottish accented English. I have to turn on the captions because I can't understand them, but I'm pretty yes. sure that they would understand me if they just heard me talking. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe exactly. actually that's the wrong assumption, but I always just assumed that they would, they would be able to understand like British English or American English more easily than we could understand them. Is Brazil just like constant parties and like no. dancing in the streets? <laughs> okay. No. I don't, I, so in I don't the know south, where, yeah. where like Marcelo comes from, where I come from, it's really boring. You know, we shake hands. Yeah. And then I go, I always use this example as you go north, your kinesphere changes as you go north because. Your what? Like we shake hands. Your kinesphere. Yeah, kinesphere is this space that like I can move my body. Oh. It's a sphere that like contains the maximum range of motion that I can have with my limbs. So that's like your personal bubble? This is something yes, we call that? Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the kinesphere changes because uh, when you interact with people, because in the South, we shake hands, then it starts to be like one kiss, but like people kiss when like, I think you can't see me, but because I of this terrible lighting. I can see you. Yeah. Okay. So you kiss someone, but like you even put like your lips to the side, uh-huh. Uh-huh. not to touch the, the, the person's cheek, you know, yeah. you kiss there like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it goes like this in Sao Paulo. There is a little bit of this. And then you start like actually like giving one kiss to people and other places they give two kisses or they just hug. And then you go to the Northeast. And they do all these things. Uh, they kiss, they hug, and they talk to you and they grab your arm, you know, yeah. and like touching you and like doing this. So the, 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 the context, uh, native Brazilians, the octotones, the natives, the natives are pretty clean, super clean. And so it's really because of this heritage it's really rude if someone smells bad in like a public environment. So everybody takes lots of showers and like puts a lot of perfume because it's really not polite Hmm. to smell bad in Brazil. Really bad, it's really bad. So there is this thing that like the children go to the mother and saying like, uh, am I ready to go to school? Uh, Like I'm ready to go to school and mom says like, come here. And like they go and like they check on the kid to see if they are smelling good, but otherwise it's not respectful. The society, you know, if you're not smelling good. So there is this thing of the mother is smelling the child. Mm-hmm. And they kept this. So when they hug you, they actually like turn their nose to your neck and they sniff you. Are you kidding me? Really? 
This really? is the kind of thing that people should definitely know because if you go to Brazil and you're not prepared for this, you could, I mean, that would, that would freak me out. Is it men that. and other, is it men that do it to each other or just women and men? Everyone. Everyone, everyone. sniffs each other in Brazil? Yes. Only in Northern Brazil. No, northeast. 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 Oh my God. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's so common. People sign emails instead of signing hugs, kisses, they sign sniff. Sniff. You're blowing my mind right now. Wait, so do, yeah. they, do they do the kiss, kiss, kiss? Do all men and women do that also? Yes. And men, uh, men well, do it men, to each other no, too? Men no, men don't, don't kiss each other much. Interesting. It, it's, it's really nice. It's really nice. So I came back uh, from here and I went directly there to do a postdoc in the Northeast. And I was like, oh my God. Because it's really different than here. Yeah. So like it took me a while like to get used to it. Yeah. But afterwards it was all huggy already. I, I, it was easy to adapt. But like at the beginning was, oh my God, what's happening? And they would like, okay, okay, I know I'm here. It's fine. <laughs> it's interesting because you talked about the kinesphere. And there, I guess there, there are different types of kinespheres, right? Because the one that you're talking about is like very close and people are touching each other a lot, but it's in an affectionate way. And yeah. then I'm thinking about going to like East Asia where your exactly. kinosphere is very small. Like yes. people touch each other all the time, but it's not affectionate. Yes. It's more just like um, yeah. utilitarian. You know what I mean? Yes. Like getting pushed onto a train yes. or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you have this at, in Sao Paulo as well, because in Sao Paulo, like if you go to the Metro rush hour, you have exactly that. And then like, and this is exactly the opposite. People are really making a lot of effort to express that, like, they have no, they have nothing to do with you, you know? They, they are touching you just because of mm. they have no other option. Mm -hmm. So they are looking up, they have their hands next to their bodies, and they're just, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, let me just pretend I'm not touching you or not touching me. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting the way the North is, the way they are. Yeah, it's um, surprising. We don't have any of these in the South. The South is boring. The South <laughs> is just like shaking hands and, you know, it's it's not as warm. It's pretty cold, actually. Yeah. It, it goes below freezing. Right. So, you know, it, it goes, I think it goes a lot of the temperature, like the way people uh, interact socially goes a lot of the temperature. That's an interesting point. I think with the climate, yeah, you're oh, right. Not the temperature, the climate. Right, you're thinking that like Southern Europe versus Northern Europe is obvious. Exactly. Example, or even Montreal in the summer and the winter. Hmm. What, what is that? What, what is Montreal in the like in spring? You know, it yeah. seems that everyone is like flourishing. All right, Carolina. Well, we've been going for a better part of an hour. Um, we should wrap it up. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you want to offer before we sign off here? Ula. Ula, I don't know. <laughs> We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think uh, we went over like uh, cool things. Um, well, tell us where we can find you. Uh, what is Flip Real? And uh, yeah. like, how, do we, how do we find you? So, yeah, I have uh, two websites. My personal website is uh, carolinabroom.com. And, and I also have a consulting company I run with like some friends and, uh, it's fliprl.com uh, and we do lots of, uh, great things from, uh, other companies building HCI and yeah, I think, um, uh, there's where you can find me and I still do like some academic publications here and there when I have time and. Uh, I love it, actually, uh, doing that. It's like there's lots of uh, great things coming out of uh, fresh minds. So as a final statement, maybe I would like to add that I think art, like our uh, domain, that like uh, you did the master, your master's in the music technology program, I did the PhD. It's like you asked, like, why music and how this music plays with uh, what we do now in HCI. I think it's really important because when you put art, you put human on the equation. 
I think that for like HCI, the most important part there is the human. So I think that that is my my final thought that like all this art background and thinking, I think it helps a lot on building devices that uh, are great for people that people like. Well, thank you very much. And uh, we will definitely keep in touch. It was really nice to get back in touch with you. Good luck on, on everything you're doing next. I'm looking forward to the Pixel 4. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. I have a broken phone right now and like <laughs> I'm waiting. <laughs> you know, I'm waiting. And uh, thank you so much for uh, having me. And it was great to chat. And uh, we should, we should uh, organize ourselves and do some cool stuff together for sure. <laughs> Sounds awesome. All right, Carolina, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can find me online at DaveBirnbaum.com. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it, telling your friends and colleagues about it, and by supporting it through Patreon. More information at DaveBirnbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. The views and opinions expressed in this recording do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner or guests may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone, or anything. Copyright 2019, Dave Birnbaum. 